From Koningstein Road in the east to Cetus Gap in the west, an orange curtain has descended across the Ojai Valley. This is Ojai Talk of the Town. Hey everyone, Brett Bredigan, editor of your Ojai Magazines, the monthly and quarterly. This episode, our guests are Dr. J.B. Dias and his partner, Cynthia Allen. You're in for a treat as we go deep into jazz and what it means to the world and how it can apply to virtually everything in your life. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Dias, Cynthia, thanks for joining me. Thanks so, for having us. Yeah, of course. I'm very excited for this talk. You got, we got some distinguished guests. And uh, we're going to talk about jazz, which I don't think I've had any jazz musicians or musicologists or pedagogues on the podcast. So this is going to be interesting. As you know, we were just talking about Maynard Ferguson, who lived here for many years. Also, um, Gene Lees, and, uh, who's well known for, if you want to pick it up from there. Well, uh, thanks for having us, Brett. Yeah, Gene Lees, uh, what a great writer, jazz critic, jazz historian, uh, writer, uh, composer, uh, lyricist, wrote the lyrics for Quiet Nights of Quiet Stars, also known as Corcovado by Antonio Jobim. But it doesn't surprise me because Ojai is such an artistic haven. That's, that's for sure. So you, you've got an, a new, well, let's tell, talk a little bit about your background. You've been teaching for a long time, right? I'm a jazz bassist, but I'm also an academic. I have a PhD in music education, and I currently serve as vice president for education and curriculum development at the Herbie Hancock Institute of Jazz at UCLA. But I still consider myself a jazz musician first, and when I do my taxes and it says, it says, you know, profession, I always write down jazz player. <laughs> yeah. That's what did the, nobody's ever pushed back on that. They're like, what the heck is that? <clears throat> so you've got a new project. Uh, well, maybe not new, but you've, you've been developing this for a while about using jazz for a wide lateral of things to do with business and life. Absolutely. My presentation is called Leadership Through the Jazz Paradigm. And I talk about jazz, diversity, equity, and inclusion in this talk. And what this is for, it's for <clears throat> basically non-musicians. It's for company executives, uh, federal agencies, healthcare, in order to help them using the tenets of jazz, what we do in jazz, leadership in jazz, to build better morale in their companies, better productivity, and ultimately uh, better profits. I recently uh, presented this for the Federal Trade Commission. Hmm. And the Federal Trade Commission, you know, that, that's one of the government agencies. You know, they're one of the good guys. The Federal Trade Commission, they're the ones that make sure there's uh, no monopolies and that there's... Uh, you know, truth in advertising. Equal and so, playing field. Yes. And so they contacted me a while ago because they were interested in learning from the jazz space how to build better partnerships and coalitions in their space. So I went in there with a, a, a four-piece uh, jazz combo, 
and we performed and we talked about how leadership occurs in jazz and how those companies, government agencies, healthcare organizations, can streamline to and change their culture in their businesses using the tenets of jazz. And what is that like? I know um, you've described jazz as a conversation. Does that, uh, is that the back and the forth that goes on? Is that the, you know, everybody is like a, like a player? Well, it, absolutely. Everybody, everybody in the jazz group uh, is important. Now, leadership, I mean, jazz musicians are amongst the best leaders I've ever, uh, ever seen because you look at, uh, you know, what, what makes a good leader? Well, one thing is overcoming problematic working conditions. That's something that a leader needs to teach uh, and uh, advise and represent to his or her employees and uh, colleagues that you overcome problematic working conditions. Well, what, what would that be for a jazz musician, like a rowdy crowd? Well, yes, but, you know, when we show up at the gig and the piano's out of tune and the acoustics are bad and the, and the drummer doesn't show up and the stage is way too small, we still have a great set. It wouldn't occur to us not to have a great set. We might even have a better set than if the drummer had showed up. Hmm. So, in fact, hey, let's do our next gig without the drummer. It sounded so great. Really? So well, overcoming so as problematic work. As a work, bass player, are you the one that picks up the rhythm then? You can't, you can't have a group without a bass player. <laughs> yeah. Okay, you can get by without the drummer. I mean, what's the definition of a jazz combo, a bass player, and at least one other person? <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. Somebody's got to lay it down. So if companies understand that you overcome problematic working conditions and whatever it is, you still have a great set, you still have a great season, you still have great sales, that's one thing they can learn from the jazz uh, paradigm. Another is that in jazz, we take turns leading. Now, of course, there's always a designated leader. I mean, in the Miles Davis quintet, of course, Miles Davis was the leader. But at any given moment, anybody could be in charge in that group. It might be the saxophone player, or the pianist, or the bassist, or the pianist and bassist together, or the drummer. And they share leadership, and everybody appreciates the uh, different leadership at the moment, including the real leader, the designated leader. Miles Davis would have uh, his great players like Herbie Hancock and Tony Williams and Ron Carter and Wayne Shorter. He would, they would lead him as much as Miles would lead them. And turned out to be one of the greatest jazz groups in all of history. He did the same thing with his great group in the 50s. As a matter of fact, jazz musicians always leave their ego at the door. And even if they don't see eye to eye, even if they don't get along, even if they have complete opposite ideas on how it's supposed to be played, once they hit that bandstand, they're of like mind. For instance, the great Miles Davis trumpet player and the great John Coltrane saxophone player here are two cats who had completely different ideas on the right way to play jazz. And I'm putting right in quotes because Miles in the 50s, he liked to use a lot of space and because they would improvise their melodies and mm -hmm. Miles would, you know, dee yada, 
Wait, wait. Where Coltrane would fill up every note on his saxophone, fill up every space, just fill up. And yet, and, and Miles would play just maybe two or three choruses, meaning just a couple of times through the form of the tune, where Coltrane would go on and on and on and on and on. I mean, he would just play so long. There's a, the great story about how they were playing at the Village Gate and Miles would uh, play his solo and then Coltrane would start playing his solo. Miles would go downstairs, walk to the deli two blocks away, get a ham sandwich, have it come back and still be in time to play the melody again at the end of the tune. Snapping his fingers the whole time. And exactly right. And uh, Coltrane came to Miles and said, uh, you know, Miles said, "Uh, Train, man, you play too much. Miles had this throat condition where he talked like this. Train, man, you play way too much. And Coltrane says, yeah, Miles, I, I, I just don't know how to stop. I get going. I don't know how to stop. I don't know how to stop. And Miles said, try taking the horn out of your mouth. <laughs> so sometimes it's just not that deep. So they came together and created an album called Kind of Blue mm-hmm. in 1959, which is not is only a masterpiece. Birth of Cool? It's Birth of the Cool came after that. Oh. But, uh, but I think... Cool was birthed, <laughs> to be more specific. But, but, but what I was going to say was that it's, it's not only a masterpiece artistically, in the same way that Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, or anything by Da Vinci, or Baryshnikov, or Spielberg is a masterpiece. It was it was also a commercial success, and is still to this day the number one selling jazz record in history. So people with complete opposite views come together. They make something much better than if they had the same views. And businesses can learn from that. Yeah, I can see that. Give and take. Yeah, I only have one, one uh, Miles Davis story. Somebody was a horn player, I think. Miles Davis had played some gig. This was like in Detroit. Long time ago. Not that long ago, actually. It was like he was pretty, like, in his... Seven. It was like in the early 90s, and he died like 95 or 96, or maybe it was in the late 80s. But he'd played a gig, and then he didn't. He was all jazzed up, didn't want to go back to his room and sleep. So he just made a couple of calls and got some guys together to come to his hotel room, and they played until 6 or 7 in the morning, and this guy just had never stepped on a stage like that, and he was a little intimidated, but he got through it. And he was just loved it. I mean, time just whipped right by. And then when he finally, you know, the sun's coming up through the window, there's time to pack up their instruments and go home. And Miles hadn't said a single word. And he looks at the guy who's going, you got big ears. <clears throat> he said, it's like the, he's floating on cloud nine for the rest of his life. You got big ears. Yeah, that's one of the best compliments you can have. That means you're intensely listening. And that's another thing that businesses can learn from the jazz paradigm is that jazz musicians, in order to function, we have to actively and intensely listen to one another. I'm a bassist. I don't know what to play unless I'm intensely listening to the drummer. 
and the drummer doesn't know what to play unless he or she's listening to me. And we both have to listen to the pianist. And as a rhythm section, piano, bass, and drums, we have to listen to the horn players and the vocalist, and they have to listen to us, or else we can't function. So we're intensely and actively listening to one another all the time and supporting one another because we want the other person to succeed. Nobody wants the drummer not to have a good night. Even if we can't stand this cat, we want him or her to have a good night. So we support, we encourage, and that's what businesses have to do. And when they do, they see that the whole is definitely greater than the sum of the parts. I think that's a good point. I think about uh, investment decisions of like uh, Berkshire Hathaway. What's that guy's name? Not Charlie Munger, the, the big, big guy, Warren Buffett. He always looks for companies that have a whole greater than a sum of the parts. And it's like, usually, interestingly, it's with a CEO is not all that. Like the company would do great without them, maybe even do better without them. But it's the idea that everybody is so in tune with each other all the way, all the way across. And there's like just walking the factory floor or sitting in the C-suites, you can, you can pick up those vibes. Well, as I said, jazz musicians have to intensely listen to one another to function, and when they do, they get a better product. I mean, wouldn't it be great if all our world leaders were jazz musicians, supporting well, one another, yeah, listening to one another? If Congress were made up of all jazz sure. musicians, yeah. it'd be a whole different world. Well, I, I do hope they rinse out their spit valves. <laughs> well, are there any presidential musicians except for performative uh, Bill Clinton at the Arsenio Hall. Does anybody, there must be some other presidential musicians out there. Well, Bill Clinton was a jazz musician in high school and you know at the Herbie Hancock Institute we do a um, annual competition every year and Bill Clinton came and, and spoke at one and he talked about how it was the discipline of learning how to play jazz in, when he was in high school that helped him with his entire career all the way up to President of the United States. So there's a person that really understood uh, leadership through the jazz paradigm. Well, how did you pick up on this notion that it's got this translatability? Well, it just seemed to make sense. It seemed to make sense that you know, no, matter, no matter what, jazz musicians find a way. And I just thought, you know, you look at companies and you see infighting, you look in government agencies, you see infighting. You don't see that in a jazz group, maybe off the stage, but once they come to do their job, they have one purpose, and that is to make great music. To make great music with the cats who are on the stage with them, regardless of uh, whatever. Before my gig at the uh, Herbie Hancock Institute of Jazz, I was the executive director of the Brubeck Institute. Oh, take five. Take five. And this was one of the highlights of my career because I got to know Dave Brubeck very well. He became like my grandfather, one of the wisest and his his true humanitarian. And he had one of the greatest quartets in history. And he and his saxophone player, Paul Desmond, one of the greatest there's ever been, couldn't be more opposite. Mm -hmm. And they butted heads about everything. And they, as a matter of fact, uh, 
in their careers, you know, in here they're making hit records like Take Five, which is still uh, the the that the rec the album that that's on um, called Time Out is the fifth number one selling jazz album in history. But they couldn't get along, so they separated, and and uh, and Dave did his trio for a while, and uh, and Paul Desmond worked with other other players. But they weren't making the kind of music they were making together, and they weren't making the kind of money they were making together. Mm-hmm. So they came back together. Dave was a devout family man, devout Catholic, didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't do drugs, uh, went to church. Uh, Paul Desmond was a true ladies' man. A, you know, his alcoholism, alcoholism is well known. He a chain smoker, always had a woman on each arm. A chain smoker, I mean, he died of lung cancer at age 52. But they came together, and when they hit the stage, man, it was one mind, one purpose, and they've made some of not only the greatest jazz in history, but some of the greatest art in history, regardless of genre, yeah. right, right up there with all, all the great artists. And businesses need to do that. Paul wanted Dave to succeed, and Dave wanted Paul to succeed. And they would take turns leading, just naturally. It wasn't, oh, now you lead for a while, now you lead for a while. They would just fall in, and if businesses would learn that technique, they'd have better morale, more productivity, and higher profits. Yeah, there's a the flow state, they call it. Right, they can trace it on an MRI when the areas of your brain get lit up, the whole brain, not just one one part, and you're just like time just flows effortlessly, and there's the just the conversation that goes on back and forth. There's no effort at all. It's just a state of mind. Well, now I know jazz is described as the truly original American art form. What? Why is that? And how how did it become recognized as that? Well, jazz is truly America's music. It was born here in this country. You know, a lot of people think that jazz came from Africa, but uh, jazz did not come from Africa. Jazz came from America. It was African Americans Mm -hmm. who invented this music, and African Americans. And jazz is basically, at least when it started in New Orleans a little over 100 years ago. It's a new music. I mean, the very first jazz recording was made in 1917. And so you have certain elements coming from Africa, like the rhythms we hear in jazz, coming from the African musical tradition, the sensibility of playing it in your own distinctive personal way came from Africa. What came from Europe? Well, the instruments we use in jazz. The piano, the saxophone, these are European inventions. Also, the chord progressions are basically classical music, Baroque, basically Bach. I mean, a lot of people argue that, you know, you take Bach, you hip it up, you have jazz. And and then improvisation actually came from both cultures. And you put all these elements together in a cosmopolitan city, uh, a port city like New Orleans, where all these different uh, people that are coming from these different backgrounds come together. You add a little bit of soul. You add a little bit of gospel music. You add some blues, and jazz was born. Well, I've heard ragtime is a progenitor, and I'm not sure exactly 
how so? Like when people say WB Handy was set the stage for jazz, I, I imagine that's just one of many currents, but going back to like the late 19th century, early 20th, what, what was it that set the stage for the emergence of jazz? And how did you know? Is there like a moment that this is not jazz? And then, whoa, this is? Well, ragtime was the direct precursor of, of jazz. So what you had was you had people like Scott Joplin, and what they were playing in their left hand was this steady beat, kind of like a European march. Boom, chick, boom, chick, boom, chick, boom, chick, where the right hand would do all this syncopated, like African rhythms uh, and ragged rhythms. That's why yeah. it was called ragtime. So you, you, had, you had that happening where you had that marriage again. Remember, jazz being a marriage between European musical traditions and African European. African musical traditions. Now, of course, jazz is influenced by all traditions, all continents, all ethnicities, all countries, all backgrounds. But the basis was the European and the African. So you have Scott Joplin and these ragtime players playing the steady beat in the left hand, European style, strict, the right hand ragged, and then what happened was you had ragtime bands that imitated ragtime piano players. So you'd have like the uh, trumpet playing some of the, what the right hand was doing or the clarinet playing what some of the right hand was doing and the tuba playing what the left hand was doing and the banjo playing like when they go boom chuck, boom chuck, the, the, the tuba would be doing the boom and the banjo would be doing the chuck. So you had the ragtime bands and then that involved into early jazz, which some people call Dixieland, and then it's just every generation, it went through, you know, went to swing music, and bebop, and hard bop, and cool jazz, and free jazz, and avant-garde jazz, and fusion, and now, today, jazz, everything, all styles, classical, Latin, uh, Eastern, everything goes into the pot, and now it's improvised music. And how did it get out into the rest of the world? I know France uh, was early um, recognition of jazz as an art form. It's like it has to go. It has just like uh, you know, uh, folk and and blues had to get reprocessed through the English to become rock and roll. How did that happen with jazz? Well, you know, jazz started in, in New Orleans, went to Chicago, went to New York, and then went to the rest of the world. Uh, New York is still the jazz capital of the world, but you would have, I mean, even in World War II in Germany, where jazz was absolutely outlawed, there'd be jazz groups playing underground because jazz was about freedom. Jazz is, jazz is freedom within a framework. And freedom within a framework. I'm going to write that down. Yeah. Freedom within a framework. And so, uh, the French, of course, love jazz. I mean, Jane Reinhardt, there were Stefan Grappelli, there were these wonderful European musicians. And now, of course, jazz is played. Jazz is played and listened to all over the country, all over the world, on all seven continents. <laughs> you know, even in, in, in the science lab in Antarctica, they're listening to jazz, even in outer space, in the space station, they're listening to Miles Davis. And I, and I know this on good authority. Isn't that interesting? I wonder whether the records that went out in uh, 
Voyager, where they're shooting all the trove of human knowledge into outer space, and aliens will pick up on it someday. I wonder if there's jazz in that. <laughs> that would be a, you know, you think about America as this place where people come from all over with their contributions and how it comes together, and that's like, it seems like where else but here, you know? It couldn't have happened anywhere but here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, jazz is now, you know, we call jazz America's music, but in truth, jazz is now the world's music. Yeah. You know, there are amazing Japanese jazz musicians and South oh, yeah. American Hiroki, jazz musicians. That, what's the lady's name, the piano player that's so vibrant? Hiroki? Hiromi. Hiromi. Yeah, there's a, guy, there's a friend of mine in Ohio that plays drums on, with her on, on her tours. Says so it's just the most amazing correspondence with the audience. Like she just engages people incredibly. Isn't that something? She's a classical musician. Her parents rebelled against her stepping outside the bounds of, you know, the the Schoenberg and the Stravinsky and the microtonal scales and all that. They wanted her to do that contemporary modern, but she slipped out the back door and went to these clubs. And I just think it's it's wonderful. It so, seems to be that it's a natural evolution that jazz began here, and it, it seems to make sense now that the world will be operating more on an equal playing field where everybody has a voice, like in mm-hmm. a jazz ensemble. Everybody can have a chance to shine and to contribute. And it doesn't matter what your background is in a jazz ensemble because your goal is a common goal, to have a good set. And... I feel that this applies to businesses, that you can come into a business from a different culture, uh, different background, different language. That doesn't matter. You come together to work together, to have an equal playing field, so you can all contribute to the success of a common goal. And that's what I think is the, the beauty of what's happening in jazz and now in the world, where there's a more... There's a, a, an awareness of equality that always needed to happen, and now it's really coming to the forefront. Well, I can certainly see it as a metaphor, but even more than that, huh? It's just a, a practice. Well, it's individual freedom, but with responsibility to the group. Yeah. That's really what it is, I think. And isn't that the definition of democracy? Individual freedom, but with responsibility to the group. There's no better example of a perfect democracy than a jazz ensemble because that's what it is. It's individual freedom, but with responsibility to the group. When I'm in a jazz, when I'm performing in a jazz group, I can play whatever I want to play as long as it makes the group sound better. Hmm. So somebody tosses it over to you and you toss it back. and it's, It does sound like one of those corporate uh, team-building exercises. Yeah. When I do these presentations, uh, we always get, you know, they always do the evaluations afterwards, especially if it's like a, for a business for a, where they do a retreat or they have, um, you, a, a, you know, a conference or a, a leadership conference or, or whatever, and there's many speakers and they talk about this and they talk about that. And ours always goes mm. over the best. Because they're hearing, we, we play jazz, we talk, about, we talk about this, and when they fill out those evaluate, evaluation forms, we really feel it's changing heads. And, the, and businesses and healthcare organizations, I mean, I, 
I was on a panel a couple of years ago with um, a physician who, from New Orleans of all places, he's a jazz aficionado, not a jazz musician, but a jazz aficionado. And he wants healthcare to run more like jazz group because he said sometimes these doctors will just berate nurses, or oh, they yeah. they won't they won't uh, uh, speak with the patient with the, with the patients with dignity and so forth. He said it's it's sometimes it's just out of hand, and they're in God mode. And he says this needs to be run more like a jazz group. So we came and did our presentation and talked about that. And he said, it's almost instantaneously, people go, yes, why not? This is great. And of course, you hear the music, and, you, and, and so you get to feel, not only think it, but you get to feel what's going on. Yeah, I can see the applicability. What, what is one area that you think it might not work? You think of military, like the forward operating commands? And I'm trying to think, where would that metaphor in a team situation breakdown that to be very hierarchical wouldn't it i yeah, the thing is is that i don't know maybe there aren't any i don't th- i the military is a good example where i think it would work because if it's dave brubeck if it's the dave brubeck quartet or the miles davis uh, quintet or the jb dias septet yes i'm in charge and it's finally you know if if it if if push comes to shove and there's got to be some tough decision made, then, of course, that leader makes the decision. But with everybody working together for a common goal, that's exactly what the military wants. Yeah, isn't it? Uh, Napoleon said every corporal has in his knapsack a marshal's baton. Oh, I love that. Oh, I'll <clears throat> borrow that if I may, Napoleon. Well, the idea that part, a big part of his success is that, you know, he's a peasant. He came from nowhere. So he brought all the, all the other people like him together, you know. It was like uh, he flattened out the hierarchy. So people at the, you know, the, the lowliest private could make a battlefield decision. And that's how it is, too, in jazz. I mean, the least experienced player on that bandstand might just absolutely have the magic that night. And yeah, well, you say septet, so seven players. Is that, uh, that must be a little more complicated than a quartet. Yeah, the more, the more horn players you have, the, the, the more preparation you need. But uh, it's still the same paradigm. Hmm. Well, what is the septet? How many, how, how many brass do you have? Well, that's three horns and four rhythm, meaning, uh, meaning that you have trumpet, saxophone, and trombone, and then piano, bass, guitar, and drums. Yeah. So 1917, and then what was uh, Gershwin's uh, Rhapsody in Blue was only like, what, not even 10 years later, right? Yeah, and that... So it moved fast. Yeah, and the Rhapsody in Blue is a jazzy piece, but it's not, not jazz. Not really jazz. Because it's, it, it doesn't have improvisation. The, the most oh, it's all notated. It's all notated. Adulted. The most important, and, and except when Herbie Hancock uh, takes hold of it. Yeah, when Herbie Hancock played it with the uh, L.A. Uh, L.A. Symphony <clears throat> a few years ago, and uh, he improvised, and it was great. It was it was tremendous, and everybody everybody loved it, except you know for the purists, and they're going, "Oh, oh. what are you doing?" And yeah. Herbie, with you know what I'm, what I, my answer is, making it better. <laughs> yeah, sure. 
That's uh, nothing stays static. But the the reason why uh, I'm in Ojai is um, just a few weeks ago, I did this presentation at the Ojai Retreat. And the Ojai Retreat is a wonderful uh, getaway for us living in Los Angeles. And it was attended by business people and, and uh, people leading organizations and then people just wanting to know more about jazz, you know, loving music lovers of all stripes, wanting to know about more how, how jazz works. And that's how I start off my presentations. I used to talk about how a jazz tune is put together, how jazz works, and give some demonstrations of that. And then we talk about how that, what the jazz paradigm is and how businesses healthcare organizations, government agencies can learn from that paradigm and apply it in their own situation. Yeah. And from this, the Ojai Retreat is going to be, in the near future, uh, having a, a music masterclass and concert series where they'll be bringing in artists to not only perform at their new performance space, which is under construction but will be finished soon, but also masterclasses for musicians and non-musicians alike. You teach master classes? Yes, I do. I, uh, I, I do master classes all over the world. And uh, jazz has given me that life. I've, uh, I've performed now in all 50 states. I've done uh, jazz master classes in South America, in Russia. Oh my God, in 2018, we're in Russia. Everything was cool. Oh my God, they loved Americans, they loved jazz. Yeah. Uh, in Cuba, in um, Australia, Istanbul, Paris, France. Japan. Uh, yeah, Osaka was oh, yeah. one of my favorite cities. They're crazy for jazz in Japan, aren't yeah. they? I was, treated like a, I was treated like a rock star. I was like, or Frank Sinatra. I mean, <laughs> it was unbelievable the kind of respect you get when, you, when they know you're a jazz musician in Japan. Well, how, how did you get into jazz in the first place? Where'd you grow up, and how, what's your background? Well, I grew up in New York, in Greenwich Village, and oh. I was a theater kid. My dad was a director-producer, and my mother was an actress. And uh, and every summer... Stage? Was she stage actress? Stage actress and a drama teacher. And my dad, my dad was medium successful. My dad had one Broadway hit called Send Me No Flowers in the 60s. Mm. And, and then we had a summer theater, summer stock theater in a place called Saugatuck, Michigan. And the, every summer... Marjorie Morningstar. Say it again? Marjorie Morningstar, remember that? That was the first movie where I ever heard anything about, you know, theater oh, camp. Yep. Yeah. Well, summer stock, it was a professional equity house, and I was there for 17 seasons Whoa. from the time I was two. And I learned every phase of the theater. I ran lights, I ran sound. I, my sister was a costumer, I helped her in the costume shop, I cleaned the dressing rooms, I filled the Coke machines, I played drums in the pit, I acted in plays, worked in the box office, worked in the shop, learned everything, but my dad would always say, because my dad, as I said, was medium successful, like, he'd be home a lot, and then he'd be not home, and then he'd be home a lot and not home. And he would say, Jim, Billy, stay out of the theater. 
you don't need this. You can get something something far more stable. I'll send you to college. I'll pay for your college tuition, but not if you're going to be a drama major. These are great life skills to learn, but you don't need this. So I remember when I was 12 years old, I came to him and said, well, Dad, I decided what I want to do with my life. And he said, you're not going into the theater, are you? Because I'll, I'll take care of your college and everything, but not if you're going to be going to theater. And I said, no, Dad, something a lot more stable. He said, what's that, son? I said, jazz musician. <laughs> so, what kind of a reaction did he get out of you? Yeah, so that was, that was the big joke in uh, my, my family's life. And my dad never, um, I don't think my dad ever realized I was successful until I became executive director of the Brubeck Institute. And then he said, oh, this yeah. jazz thing's working out for you. Yeah, that's quite a distinction. How did that come about? How did you get into the other side, the, the academic side of it? Well, I was strictly, a, you know, I, right out of high school, I was strictly, I was never going to go to college. And in fact, my, my parents were shocked, you know, when I told them I was going to school. Because right after high school, I got into a band, a top 40 rock and roll band, and I was playing six nights a week on the road, playing in lounges all over the country. This was, this was in the in the '70s, when all these uh, when all these hotels had rock bands, top forty mm-hmm. bands in the lounges. And so, uh, I'm on the road and playing rock and roll, and I realized that there had to be more to life than just uh, you know playing rock and sleep until three in the afternoon. And the reason why I was getting up at three in the afternoon is because that's when General Hospital came on. <laughs> Luke it, and Laura. It was Luke and Laura years, exactly right. <laughs> and I was hooked. So I, uh, I had a revelation that I need to uh, do something with my life. And I had, had this mentor of mine named Bill Prince, great jazz musician, was on Buddy Rich's band. And he was the director of jazz studies at Florida Atlantic University, and I was down there at the time in Boca Raton, Florida. And so I, you know, I looked in the mirror one day and said, "What am I, what am I doing, getting up at three o'clock in the afternoon to watch General Hospital? There's got to be something more." So I called my mentor, Bill Prince, made an appointment, and I said, "Man, I'm playing in the best band I've ever played in. I've." making the most money I've ever made and making more money than my dad, I'm not fulfilled. What am I going to do? Had your Peggy Lee moment? Is that all? Yes. So, so he said, well, why don't you try teaching? And I said, Oh, I I don't know, man. And he said, you know, I was living the life doing the buddy rich thing. And I decided to go back to school, get my degrees. And now I have this great gig here at Florida Atlantic university. And now, then he later went to the University of North Florida, which is a really great jazz school. And now he's professor emeritus there. But he said, why don't you try teaching? And I said, he says, I think you'd be good at it, man. And I said, "Uh, well, I I don't know. So as fate would have it, when I'm in his office, the, the chairman of the music department from Broward Community College, which is in Fort Lauderdale, right down the street from... Is that a historically black university? No, it's just... Oh, okay. It's all... It's something else, never mind. All ethnicities, Broward Community College. And he calls Bill in his office and says, Bill, uh, 
I need a guitar teacher to come in part-time to teach one day a week because my guitar teacher just left in the middle of the semester to go on the road with the Pointer Sisters, which was a big rock, which oh, was a yeah, big pop Sisters. act in that, those days. And he said, can you recommend somebody? I need someone to start right away to finish the semester. And so Bill just put his hand over the phone and says, well, hold on just a second. And he says, JB, I got a gig for you right now, teaching gig one day a week at Broward Community College. You want to try this teaching thing or not? And I said, okay. I mean, what was I going to say? I mean, yeah. uh, so. But guitar, though. You figured yeah, you could I, play I was anything. a rock and roll guitar player. Pick up I, anything. Huh? Yeah, I mean, I was a rock and go- roll guitar player before I was a bass player. So, yes, I, guitar, no problem. In fact, my bachelor's degree was in guitar performance, and then I switched to bass later. Um, so I started, I went down one day a week, taught seven students as they're eight hours, one hour, you know, one student, and I loved it. And I was playing in a band called The Kids Next Door, very successful pop group. And I remember the drummer once said, you know, JB, could you please shut up about your teaching? We know you love it, because that's all I would talk about. So I went back to college. I got my master's degree at the University of Miami. And then I did my PhD under the great jazz pedagogue, uh, David Baker at Indiana University. Which, so it took me 14 years to get my PhD. I, I was on the 14-year plan. <laughs> well, that's still quite a distinction. Yeah. And Cynthia, how did you get into this world? Well, I am a musician. I'm a classical flutist. Mm. And I was working in Florida and uh, going to different workshops. And that was how I... Met, Came into his uh, guitar met, class? Yeah, I, I met him, and then several years later, I had moved and was living in New England, and he called me up to see, say hello and see how I was doing, and the rest is history. Nice. <laughs> and yada, 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 20 years <laughs> later, we got married in Paris. Yeah. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's a really great story. Yeah. How'd you get, how'd you get to California? I was offered Perfect the job. Exactly. It was called the Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz. I was uh, teaching at um, New World School of the Arts in Miami, Florida, and Miami Dade College. Uh, Miami Dade College is right downtown Miami, and they built the uh, New World School of the Arts, which is the Performing Arts High School. I was director of jazz studies. And we played at this festival, this competition festival at Universal Studios. And um, the executive director of the Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz heard us and talked to me, and he said, we want to do, we want to have an arm of the uh, Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz at Universal Studio. Would you be interested in heading it up? Mm. And, of course, I said, heck yes. (laughs) Are you kidding? Well, that never materialized. Never materialized. Then a couple years later, out of the blue, this same person called and said, the Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz, which is at New, Eng- Univer- New England uh, Conservatory, is moving to California, to the University of Southern California. Uh, are you still interested in working for the Monk Institute? And I said, heck yeah. And so I moved out to, uh, to the Monk Institute at USC. While I was there, I was recruited by the... Uh, to be executive director of the uh, Dave Brubeck Institute. 
And then while I was there, I was there for four years. And then the Herbie, the Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz, which is now called the Herbie Hancock Institute of okay. Jazz, uh, recruited me back. They, they uh, established this new position of, of vice president for education and curriculum development and offered me the position. And that was in 2005. And I've been back in L.A. ever since. And we're at UCLA now. And the Brubeck Institute was at the University of the Pacific, so you didn't have that big of a leap to move back to. Yeah. Right. The University of the Pacific in Stockton, California, which is just a couple hours east of San Francisco, uh, was Dave's alma mater, and that's why the Brubeck Institute was there. Really? Central Valley boy or San Joaquin Valley? Absolutely. Northern wow. California, Central Valley, Joan, born and raised. Joan Didion country. Exactly right. He, 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 was, uh, he grew up, he was a rancher when he was a kid. Wow, isn't that awesome? Yeah, I guess that's more of the currents that uh, contribute to the jazz world. Yeah, there's a guy, um, well, they used to have these Sunday morning concerts just on the other side of Ojai, <clears throat> and the guy would have a big sign, jazz, whatever, jazz event or jazz, jazz music played here or something, but he spelled it J-A-S-S. And everybody would think that was a typo, but it's not, isn't it? Like the very first spelling of jazz was jazz. Right. And, you know, the, the terminology came when you jazz something up and you made it more lively. Mm-hmm. And that's how the music got to be named jazz, because they would take music and make it more lively. And they'd say, well, you jazz it up, jazz it up. And then because it was, it was spelled J-A-S-S, as a matter of fact, that first recording in 1917, the very first jazz recording who, was... Who was on that? The original Dixieland Jazz, J-A-S-S, band. And unknowns, you know, it, it wasn't Louis Armstrong like you'd think. As a matter exactly. of fact, it was an all-white band. Uh, and then people pronounced it jazz, jazz, and it just got to be J-A-Z-Z. Yeah, that's quite... You know, New Orleans is still, like you mentioned... Uh, you know, the Marsalis family and everybody else. Is that just everybody in the jazz world has to go through there at one point? Is it like a pilgrimage? You know, Terrence Blanchard, uh, who is one of the great trumpet players in contemporary jazz today, is from New Orleans. And he was our artistic director at the Herbie Hancock Institute for a number of years, and I got to know him very well. And he said that if you really want to play jazz, if you really want to be a true jazz musician, not an imitator, but a true jazz musician, then you have to live in New Orleans for at least a couple years and soak it up because jazz is in the ethos there. It's a way of life. It's in the air you breathe. Now, I don't know if you have to do that, but it, it, it certainly, when you go to New Orleans, jazz is more than just a music there. It's, it's a way of being. It's in the ethos like the pulse, the rhythm. You can feel it coming up through the streets. It's really something. Yeah, and, and I think that uh, I, I think that's still the case. I think it was certainly more the case back in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. And especially now, jazz has become so universal. I mean, you go to Amsterdam, and you can feel jazz in the air. So yeah. you go to Osaka, Japan, and you feel jazz in the air. And I was in Columbia uh, performing and doing a workshop, and jazz is in the air. And as I said, they're listening to Miles Davis up on the space station. So I think think it's everywhere. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to draw it 
up. Um, anything else you want to say? I'll get get all the stuff in your notes about how to get a hold of you and more information. Well, maybe the article that that you wrote about leadership through the jazz paradigm, you might want to mention that, sweetheart. Well, I, as I was saying, we did the, this uh, presentation for the Federal Trade Commission. So I wrote an article in uh, Jazzed Magazine, J-A-Z-Z-E-D, Jazz Magazine, a synopsis of that. And you can find that article on my website. And my website is easy. It's just my name, jbdias.com. That's J-B-D-Y-A-S, jbdias.com. And you go to the website, and then you click on um, articles at the top, and you'll see my articles there. Also, I've got some videos there also about what jazz is, why it's important to the world. I, one of those videos I did with Herbie Hancock and uh, the U.S. Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona. Mm-hmm. And that one's had over 500,000 views on YouTube. And for a jazz musician, that's huge <laughs> that's viral that's viral and so and you can find all this at jbdias.com i talk about what jazz is the five quintessential elements of jazz uh, how jazz represents democracy how jazz represents our most deeply held american values like unity with ethnic diversity and the correlation of hard work and goal accomplishment you know in jazz it's a one-to-one correlation the more you practice the better you get Simple as that. Uh, jazz teaches perseverance. And, and um, there's, as I said, no better example of a democracy than a jazz ensemble. But mostly, jazz teaches us the vital importance of really listening to one another. This is all explained in those videos. And there's great music on there. And uh, jbdias.com. It's all free. Please check it out. And also your LinkedIn page lists a lot of the activities and the clinics and workshops that you have been involved in throughout your life. Nice. Well, thank you for joining me. That's a really lovely conversation. I really appreciate it. Do, do, do. Hey, everyone. Brett Bradigan, just thinking out loud. So the conversation was just getting rolling when I realized I didn't clear my disc from the last episode. So uh, we had to cut it short. Could have gone on for a long time. He's a really fascinating man and a couple. I highly recommend you go to his website, jbdias.com. Check out some of his videos he's recorded about jazz. The whole idea, well, one thing we didn't talk about that I wish we would have is blue notes. When somebody messes up, whether because they're not paying attention, they're not listening, as he mentioned how important that is a skill that all of us could do well to emulate, that the other players can pick up the slack. He talked about JB, or talked about uh, Miles Davis, how he took a John Coltrane misstep where he completely got off key, different time signature even, and turned it around and became one of their really outstanding pieces. It's just the give and the take and the covering up for each other and the fact that we've got each other's back. Maybe that's a lesson I want people to take away from this interview. Anyway, that's it for this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you.